the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, Camilla Burcott interviews Reverend Joel Edwards. My name is Camilla Burcott. I'm a research officer at the Development Policy Centre, and it is my great pleasure to be sitting down with the Reverend Dr. Joel Edwards, uh, who is here uh, visiting us from the UK. He's the former international director of the MICA Challenge. Uh, Reverend Edwards, welcome. Thank you very much, Camilla. Um, perhaps you could just start and tell us a little bit about yourself and what, what brings you to Australia. Well, I'm here um, on invitation from Tier Australia, and they're sort of wheeling me around the place. Mm-hmm. I spent um, spending a few days in Queens. I'm here in Canberra for a day, and then I get dispatched to Sydney um, for another few days, and I will leave eventually um, on the 9th, 10th of uh, August. And the reason I'm here really is, is, to, is to just join Tier in a conversation with their members and supporters uh, about what just leadership looks like, how as a faith community, um, Tier um, tries to up the game in Christian involvement in issues of justice and transformations. It's a huge pleasure to be back mm. in Australia. And I'm sure it would be, it'd be a great pleasure for the many people that you have a chance to meet to really engage with these questions because you're someone who has a long history and has a lot of experience dealing with these um, in the UK. So Yeah, I feel, I feel like a guy who's got a long history of learning about <laughs> these things. So it's very exciting. Every day is, you know, is a new adventure in trying to work out where this is all going and what our responsibility is mm. uh, on that journey. Yeah. Fantastic. And one of the things I'm really interested to talk to you about is... Um, what's been happening in the UK in relation to uh, foreign aid and mm. development. Um, we know about two years ago, the UK became the first G8 country to reach the 0.7% target, GNI, uh, 0.7% of GNI target for giving yes. aid, and that commitment became a law earlier this year. Um, and so my first question I wanted to ask you is, what difference will this make, having this legislated, having this in law, what difference will it make both for those who care about giving aid, who are involved in um, aid and development sector in the UK, but also for the world's poor? What difference will this legislation make? I think the legislation is, first of all, an expression of a very long journey. Um, and maybe that's the context to put it in. So I don't think there's any accident that when we had a coalition government come in five years ago in the previous administration, they ring-fenced the National Health Service and um, and aid, overseas aid, um, as two things they would prioritise. And then, as you say, that's now been put in, into law. And I think that's, that's a part of a journey which has been going on in the UK for the last 30 years of massive public uh, campaigns. Mm. Uh, Africa Aid, Live Aid, Jubilee 2000, Make Poverty History, all these have kind of led to, I think, where we, where we are now. What difference will it make? I think it tells the British people that there is good leadership on this issue. Um, Some of us are still a little bit mesmerised as to exactly why have you done this. But I think all credit to the British government. They've said, look, we are coming to recognise that um, what is happening in other parts of the world, especially previous British colonies, um, India, Africa, um, is a part of our concern. And I think the British government uh, is beginning to see that there is a joined up policy to be pursued between insecurities in other parts of the world and security for the British people, between more sustainable economic development in other parts of the world and Britain's ability to trade with, for example, India. 
And so I think there is a kind of political common sense prevailing. Mm-hmm. Now, whether we can hold this 0.7 uh, will be a part of the challenge for all of us, I think, in the years to come. Yes, no, so that's very interesting because when I was preparing for this interview, I was looking at some things that David Cameron has said, that various politicians have said, and there was a, a great quote from a speech he gave um, in 2008, just before the G8 summit, and he said, um, fortune favors Britain when we're ambitious, when we count, when we play our part in the world, and we have been playing our part. We made the decision to protect the aid budget because I believe this commitment is in Britain's long-term interest. So he's very clear about this sort of um, idea of globalization and um, economic interconnectedness um, and these sort of security-linked arguments. But I wonder, um, you know, clearly this is, this is this kind of argument that politicians are very responsive to and that the public seems to be quite responsive to. But I wonder if you see any sort of problems or risks with leaning so heavily on that economic and security angle. Is there something, so where does the moral argument for aid kind of come in or do we, do we even need it? I think we do need it, and, and you know, and I think Cameron's. I think two things are sort of tucked away in David Cameron's statement. There, one is an aspiration to be a global leader, and Britain has been very serious about kind of recovering their global consciousness and leadership role. Mm. That was there under Blair and Brown, who definitely positioned themselves as global leaders and who were passionate about these issues. If you stood in a room with either of those individuals, and indeed Claire Short, who was International Development Secretary at one point, they were passionate about the global scene. And I think that's transmitted itself and kind of carried through into the present administration. The second is what I call legitimate self-interest. And I don't think that there is any barrier between morality and legitimate self-interest. As a Christian leader, I would say, love your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus said, is great for policy. Uh, It's great for neighborliness. And so there is a morality in recognizing that people are interested in their own future and security, the future and security and education of their children. And then by extension to the future um, reciprocation in other parts of the world. So a safer world is a better world for me. And Mm -hmm. that's legitimate. And I think that's very different from a selfishness, which says we're going to protect our borders, we're going to play amongst ourselves, and we are going to seek what's good for us, and we couldn't care less about anybody else. Now, whether that's internal politics or international politics, that's bad politics. Mm, mm. That's interesting, yeah, that um, that these things are not mutually exclusive, that it can be very much um, this idea of, of self-interest is, can be a moral argument. Is um, I think it's something that's quite, it, it's a, a useful concept, but it's perhaps a, a tricky one um, to sort of, to translate, and I guess I've, what I'm interested in talking a little bit is to go back to the um, this passage of this legislation to talk a little bit about um, advocacy, particularly among NGOs and communities, and particularly um, you may be able to comment more on faith on the side of faith communities. Mm. Um, what sorts of maybe you could just give us a sort of a flavor of the kind of advocacy um, and uh, yeah interactions that sort of civil society had. Um, leading up to this, whether that was putting pressure on politicians or responding to what politicians were saying? Yeah, even in the UK context? In the UK context. Yeah, I think, no doubt about that. You know, I I was there, sort of kind of mesmerised myself, 
you know, mesmerized um, in, in Cologne in the, the height of the Jubilee campaign. So to have taken what is essentially a biblical concept of freedom and applying that to the 43 highly indebted countries who would never be able to pay their debts mm. and going on the rampage across Europe to say, please cancel these debts. Now, that was a touch of idealism, but it was also economic pragmatism. Mm. And when you have people like um, Anne Pettifor heading up a campaign like that and gaining massive public traction, drawing in governments. I remember being a part of um, quarterly breakfast meetings between Gordon Brown and Clear Short, the Treasurer and the International Development Secretary, meeting with NGOs to talk about these issues. Mm. Now, that was unprecedented. If you underlay that with the development of the MDGs and this new language about dealing with extreme poverty, that, I think, has been a very powerful concoction, educating public opinion, um, campaigning and trying to mobilise uh, individuals to, to, to hassle their politicians. I think has been a very important part of the British government's decision to actually protect uh, overseas aid. And so this is a kind of a pincer movement. You know, you, you go for your politicians, but you also try and advocate at the grassroots level. And Christian communities and faith communities have been right at the heart of that in the UK context. And it's something we can be encouraged by and proud of, although still a long way to go, mm. a long way mm. to go. Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting because it seems like you're saying that in a lot of ways it's quite a unique sort of confluence of, of events between the MDGs, between who was particularly sort of in power yeah. in, at the time, the place. But um, it is encouraging that it sounds like there's hope for us in Australia that the NGOs can get involved, can really sort of make their voices heard. Um, there's, there's hope. <laughs> I think there is hope. Yeah, I think there is hope. And I think if we could get the narrative um, right uh, about the, 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 the positive impact of aid, if we can dispel some of the myths which exist in the UK and in America and in Australia and other parts of the world, certainly across parts of Europe, that these dishonest African nations are getting you know, trillions of dollars in aid and are so corrupt. And actually put that in perspective to say, no, most of these places are losing money through corruptions, not just from bad governments, but from multinational dishonesty, mm -hmm. um, which comes back to rich nations. And that the amount of aid they get is not 7.0, but 0 0.7. <laughs> uh, if we can really sort out those kind of, uh, you know, narratives... Um, I think there is hope that we can perhaps begin to see a, a real sea change. And I think, too, to challenge our leaders, and I think in the Australian context this is quite important, to challenge leadership to be global in its perspective and its politics, not protective in its or off its borders in terms of the principal political drive. Mm. You know? uh, and I think that's what, as an outsider, I see missing in Australian politics. Okay. And another thing, I guess, speaking of narratives, um, you know, we've seen quite actually quite similar trends between the UK and Australia in terms of uh, levels of public support for aid. Yeah. Um, and sort of one of the the arguments that you often hear um, people say uh, is that you know 
that's fine. There's, there's people overseas who need help, but there are also people in our own country. There are people in our own backyard who need help, and we shouldn't be spending money overseas when there is poverty in our own communities. And I'm curious to know how you would respond to that, that sort of argument. Um, it's, it's not either or, and there is a real sense in which charity begins at home before it can spread abroad. And so um, one always has to ensure that your policies have domestic justice applied to it. But it must do in a democracy. If it doesn't in a democracy, you don't survive, and governments know that. So I think nobody's pretending that there are not two million children in the UK who are technically described as living in poverty. That's bad. Um, food banks have become, have proliferated in the United Kingdom. That is, agencies, largely churches, giving food to people in the UK. That's crazy. That's bad. And we've got to raise our voices uh, against those things. But we must not lose sight of the fact that there is no comparison between someone in the UK who is described as poor and somebody in Africa or Asia uh, living on less than $1.25 per day in extreme poverty, or individuals in other parts of the world whose life are in at risk, literally, um, and that there are 60 million displaced peoples around the world, and that we must have some kind of responsibility towards them. And so to use the domestic relative poverty at home as an excuse for doing very little or nothing abroad is is unreal politics, and it's immoral. Mm. Okay. Um, and my last question, uh, I guess it's a two-part question, um, and you alluded to this a little bit early on, um, this 0.7% uh, commitment in the UK, do you, think, do you think it will stick? And do you think it's this is something we should be seen as an exception that the UK management has managed to get there to join this very small group of countries that are at that level, or uh, do you think, as somebody who's sort of looking at sort of wider trends, is this something that we we may be seeing more of more countries reaching reaching this level of generosity? I, I hope we see more more countries reaching that level of generosity. Um, I think it will stick in the UK to the extent that we really can get the narrative right, that we can have honest debates and understand uh, proportionally what poverty is for us in the UK in a time of austerity and what it means for someone in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I hope it will stick as the the legitimate self-interest becomes clearer that poverty and insecurity elsewhere affects us. And as you will know, at the moment we're experiencing real difficulties in terms of you know immigrants coming in through the Channel Tunnel, disrupting traffic and all the rest of it. That could go in one of two ways. It could either lead to higher levels of intolerance and therefore put aid under pressure inadvertently, or it could open the eyes of the British people to say, you know what, we really are a part of a hurting world. And therefore, what we are proposing in £11.8 billion per annum for overseas development and overseas aid 
really is not disproportionate to the pain being felt there and to, to the effects it's having for us back here in the UK. If we can really begin to make those arguments, really begin to kind of ramp up um, the Secretary's uh, mantra about beyond aid, that beyond aid dialogue, and show that, yes, the aid we have given has made a difference in the treatment of diseases, in increased education, increased security. Um, and more of that leads to a better world, which leads to more security for us. I think then it will stick. It all depends on how well we do the narrative, I think. Mm, so it's always all about telling, telling the narrative, it's, telling the stories, framing it's how them. how you tell them. Framing the debate. <laughs> As a comedian would say, it's how you tell them. But so it, it's also true for politicians. Mm. Well, Reverend Edwards, I want to thank you again very much for for taking a few minutes to sit down and chat with me. Um, and I wish you all the best on um, the rest of your visit in Australia. And um, I hope that we'll have a chance to speak again in the future. Thank you very much. I hope so too. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.